Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Oswaldo Luray, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Hi, how are you? Doing great. It's great to have you here. Um, Just by way of quick introduction for my audience who may not know who you are, you are the CIO of Systemic Risk Averse Funds. Um, and you've got a very interesting background. You are an aeronautical engineer with a master's in corporate finance, an MBA, and you have a 20-year career at some of the largest banks in the world. And our conversation today, I think, is going to draw on your experience and expertise quite heavily as we start to explore the game theory underpinning modern global financial order. So um, this is going to be a big episode. I'm really excited for it. We've got a lot to work our way through. So why don't we start with kind of a primer here on evolutionary game theory. Now you mentioned to me offline that there are, you know, I guess what I would ask you to do is describe evolutionary game theory. Like what, what does it even mean for people that don't are not familiar with it, let's say. And then you mentioned to me offline that there were some differential equations formulated back in the 1920s. Um, could you unpack some of that for us? What What is evolutionary game theory? What are differential equations, by the way? I don't think a lot of people know what that is. And how is this relevant to um, the rest of the conversation we plan on having today? So... Thank you for asking. I think that's the kind of thing that that we need to spread more. Um, Let's start by telling people how human beings, we are not uh, instantly aware, we don't perceive immediately some of the complexities that develop mathematically around us. That's why science seems to be a bit complicated for most people because it's just not intuitive. So uh, a lot of the math, the uh, physics, the chemistry, the biology, the ecology that you deal with in the scientific world requires some 
uh, you know, heavy deducting and, and, and thinking that is not necessary for everyday life. So uh, the way finance has been managed, at least for the last 300 years, is by making it easy for you, uh, making people think that they can tell a complex dynamic system like a human society with uh, plus signs and minus signs and arithmetics. Mm -hmm. Basically, I'm talking about Keynes and just about every economist uh, that has come after him. Mm -hmm. People who um, want to make you believe that you can put together the development uh, production of a country under one sum of four elements, uh, of which, by the way, they forgot to put in the fifth, which is debt, and they did that on purpose. Mm -hmm. And uh, no, uh, you know, uh, human societies are just like any ecosystem. We are live creatures, and dealing with us is, you know, trying to understand how we do things economically is as complex as trying to understand any ecosystem. We are dynamic. We are continuously on and off, just like uh, every ecosystem out there, whether it's uh, insects or uh, um, no, predators or, or whatever, uh, bacteria, all living things uh, are ruled by complex dynamics. And uh, a couple of scientists back in 1925 uh, developed a, a formula for the first time ever uh, that uh, is called the loca volca terra um, mm -hmm. uh, equation, predator prey equation. Because they noticed that the fish around the, uh, the Italian uh, area uh, had practically disappeared uh, <laughs> because sharks had, had grown too much, uh, the population of sharks. And, and that's what they, they started, uh, one of them started looking into how could he basically tell what was going on and predict how that would end up uh, back to equilibrium. And so he mixed, uh, two dynamic equations, which are, uh, are called um, um, differential equations, uh, ordinary differential equations. And he, he, uh, he took the function of uh, the reproduction of, the, of both types of fish, the sharks and, and the other fish, and uh, over time played out what that function would uh, produce uh, using the, um, the, the, the differential equation for it. And that's what uh, you can do with any ecosystem where there's a feedback mm -hmm. system between two, uh, two factors. And in the case of humans, we have exactly the same thing going on. And uh, quite a few uh, smart and, and, and very knowledgeable uh, economic scientists have already done this uh, since the 1960s. Uh, the last one and most famous of them, uh, and that's the reason I mentioned him so much in, in some of my writings, is uh, Hyman Minsky. Uh, Minsky uh, was able to trace what Kondratiev did back in Russia uh, before the tenor of the 20th century and, and, and then after, um, before he was killed. And then uh, he followed Kogorov and he followed, uh, you know, the, the really uh, big mathematicians in economics that have been shut out of the mainstream, precisely because they discovered how economics really work. Mm. And if you read their work, it's amazing. You, you, you get to understand all, everything that I wrote there. And 
what there is to understand is very simple. Um, debt has a, an internal rate uh, of return, which is automatic. It doesn't need to be higher than the internal rate of return of income, which by the way, is pretty similar to the internal rate of, of, uh, of reproduction of, 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 of population because we, you know, to, to, to develop income, to, to make the development of production, uh, when they call GDP, they're talking about developing production, you need uh, a lot of coordination, a lot of effort, a lot of schooling, a lot of ingredients. Whereas even if you charge a small compound interest with that, the thing will automatically compound and become a monstrosity exponentially mm. uh, much sooner than any internal rate of return of income of mm. GDP. Mm. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, it takes um, regularly from what they found and what I found myself, it takes anywhere from 50 to 100 years for the uh, financial cycle, the debt uh, part of the equation to eventually be so much larger exponentially than the income uh, derivation that what that tells you is that that feedback loop is going to end up in collapse. And that's what they call an unstable feedback loop in engineering. That's the, the, the dynamics of, of not just evolutionary, but circuits and just about anything uh, where there is a, a feedback loop. Uh, you know, we all know what a, what a what an unstable feedback system is. And that is a system that ends up in collapse. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens to us. Every 50 to 100 years, depending on the society, depending on the place, we end up in collapse because we, we have a, 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 an accumulating debt um, interest that is unpayable and become, becomes less and less unpayable uh, from the income that mm -hmm. is produced by society. And that's why we are getting close right now to the end of this debt cycle. This, this particular debt cycle started back in 1971. And that's the reason why if you, if you read the article that I wrote, I use the chart from 71 onwards because that's where you see how those two curves start pretty similar, same size. And eventually what I'm telling you happens, which is the blue one, the financial cycle, the, the one that comes from interest. Mm -hmm. uh, goes exponentially higher um any any other uh, you want me to go no that's further? a great that's a great introduction thank you for elaborating on that and I'll, I'll try to echo some of that back to you here sure so we have evolutionary game theory and we're drawing we should mention here too we're drawing on a paper you prepared this is a one pager actually it's very, very dense but potent titled predator and prey economics uh and we'll, we'll link that in the show notes but we essentially have evolutionary game theory that describes interactions among organisms. And typically we focus on the predator and prey relations as these are universal, right? If you've ever watched the discovery channel, I think you'll understand that, um, you know, a lot of animals eat other animals. And so there are certain population dynamics that take place between them. A lot of these are describable with differential equations. As you said, they were developed in the 1920s. But for humans, there's something kind of unique in that these dynamics have manifest, manifested in the economic sphere, right? We actually have predators 
of property uh, or wealth. And we have those that own or create the wealth um, or have the property relationship that are being preyed upon. And your paper like specifically demonstrates that there's a mathematical relationship here that the internal rate of return on debt outpaces the internal rate of return on income over time. And that's what drives these uh, systems to collapse, right? The actual prey gets predated fully or, or nearly fully. So the, the property and wealth of the prey collapses, which means the predator has nothing else to prey on. So the predator collapses. And what we're saying here, when we say that these aren't animal populations, this is civilization, right? This is, this is the basis of civilization property. It's just that you own the fruits of your labor. You own yourself and you own the fruits of your labor. And well, I guess another way to say this perhaps is that those who systemize the, the management of debt or the predation of private property are preying on those that work and create real economic value. So this would be the financial class, roughly speaking, right? They're just moving paper around, connecting buyers and sellers, but not adding any real economic value, not making buildings or factories or food, nothing that people actually consume. They're just connecting buyers and sellers are preying on those that do create real economic value, right? The working class. And, um, and this entire relationship is describable in these fairly um, well put together set of equations and, and evolu- evolutionary game theory, right? That we've had for, you know, about a hundred years at this point. And they're really um, simple. That's what they call ordinary differential equations. They're, yes. they're the simplest you can get. Yes. So I guess, I mean, it sounds a bit radical, but what we're doing here, I think, is you're kind of removing the veil that there's a, you know, a politician or someone in a position of government or working on Wall Street will represent themselves as someone that's adding value or organizing society or helping civilization exist. But it's actually the exact opposite, right? If If you are a beneficiary of taxation or inflation, you're effectively a parasite on the human enterprise that you are, you're taxing, right? You're, you're reducing the net wealth creation um, through the predation of private property. So I think that's a great intro to what we're talking about here. Um, what I'd like to propose, I'd love to hear I'd your like thoughts. I'd like to add something to that before you. Before you yeah, please there. go ahead. Okay. I wouldn't call it, um, predation uh, in the sense of exploitation. Uh, human beings are, to me at least, uh, pretty much like animals uh, in the sense that they act in a way that is very, very selfish. And when they're in power, they tend to try to benefit only their own families and their own circles. And uh, that's been going on for tens of thousands of years, of course. So I, I, I can't really judge them for being, you know, what we are, humans. The, the only thing that, I, that I'm uh, really pointing out is that scientifically, we can prove that's what they're doing completely. And we know why they're hiding it behind an arithmetic uh, made up uh, science, which is not science, 
which they call economics. The economics is just uh, uh, a made up Ponzi scheme, just like fiat. Specifically Keynesian economics. It's specifically that. Yes. One. And, and, you know, a lot of them uh, before him too. I mean, if you really look at the life of Adam Smith, you'll find out that he was copying Cantillon. And, you know, the, you, you find so many details you don't want to know about the people that you thought were supposedly, uh, you know, honest and uh, knowledgeable, and they were not. They were copying other people, and they didn't really know much. And so eventually, what you find is that the only science that I believe in is mathematics, because that, it just shows you what's going on for real. And then in the end, uh, anybody who's producing value, not just the worker class, anyone, like you, for instance, for me, you're one of the people who produces the most value in the internet. And uh, anybody who teaches the world, anybody who, who tries to make the world better uh, and makes an effort on it is creating value. So, so anybody who's creating value is being taken by the predators in, in government, essentially, and uh, the cartels who manage government, because I, I don't believe government manages itself. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, uh, technologies uh, that are incredibly uh, smart and they're creating wealth and they, they end up creating it for these guys more, more, more than anybody else. So anybody who's creating wealth is being taken uh, a ride. <laughs> they take the right. ride from right now, that's a, that's a great clarification that... Um... There's a Darwinian impulse for self-preservation, right? This exists in all organisms. And that impulse in a world where, you know, taking someone's wealth is an option is something that's, it's, a, it's an option that's taken, right? If I can enrich myself by taking someone's wealth, maybe not I specifically, but maybe in certain circumstances, me specifically, I would do that, right? I would have an incentive to do that. So the the name of the game, as far as I can tell, and we can tease this out further, is to make property violation or taking really expensive or risky or difficult. Because the more the more difficult it is to take people's property, the less profitable it is to be coercive, let's say. And um to that point, you know, as in nature, where we see predators engaging in all these unique strategies to get prey, right? Often using camouflage, for instance, it seems like statist government use a moral camouflage or even an intellectual camouflage, perhaps in the case of Keynesian economics, that they represent themselves as doing, right? Whatever you're, you're being locked into your home to for your own protection, or you're paying your taxes to support your community, whatever it may be. These are all forms of camouflage the predator is donning effectively to deceive the prey into giving up what the predator wants. So, I think in that way, we could say that government is effectively the most organized crime in the world. So, when you say there's cartels running the government, I would say they're they're basically indistinguishable at the highest level, right? It's it's the most organized form of crime known to man. That's that's how I would define government. I agree. So here's the proposal I'd like to make, and I'd like to tease out with you is if there was some, and just speaking hypothetically, 
if there was some way to make property, the relationship between the between owners and their assets, an inviolable relationship or an unbreakable relationship such that you could not, no one could steal anyone else's stuff. This would effectively nullify that predator and prey dynamic, right? It's the predator is preying on the property of the prey. So if they could not prey on that property, then predator and prey relations would be removed from human economic interactions. Now, that's not possible, clearly, because we have property that's in physical space. People can always engage in physical coercion to steal physical things. However, we do have Bitcoin, which we'll talk more about later, that is the first form of property that is extremely expensive to steal to the point of being impossible if you custody it properly. So my proposal would be, are we, how does something like Bitcoin affect the predator and prey dynamics that you have regarded historically in your work? Well, unfortunately, I don't quite believe human beings uh, are able to distinguish between their intellectual property, which is the biggest thing they have, and their material property. And, and if we're talking about material property, yes, I 100% agree uh, that there's only one thing, I, I, and I don't know how it came about because it's, it, you know, it's a miracle. For me, Bitcoin, and, and I've been studying for seven years, because I was looking for something like Bitcoin to come along. Um, and that's the reason why I have that name for my fund. And I'll explain why the name is Systemic Risk Averse. Um, and the reason why I don't think uh, people are ever going to be aware of how much they're not showing them and how much they're stealing from them is because Human beings are the most amazing creators in the world. They, they can create wealth out of nothing, out of their minds. And that's the biggest wealth you have. But if you have been inculcated since you were a kid uh, of certain things they've been educating you on and other, other things that they're not telling you, uh, for the last 100 years, ever since uh, Rockefeller uh, set up the... Uh, the Board of Education in 1903, they completely changed the American curriculum and so did the Europeans. And they turned every new generation over the last 100 and some years into people who, have, who were too busy. They made them too busy to really understand the world. Uh, it, it, especially the first 12, 14 years, the way it used to be, you know, you went from from K to to eight. That was it. Uh, anything over eight is is you know whatever it is. You're keeping me busy for me not to understand what's happening. And uh, so for the last century or so, uh, they came up with the generations they wanted people who could create a lot of money for them, uh, be it from um, automobiles from. Um, technology in the airplane uh, business or whatever, uh, software eventually, uh, computers. And then uh, they were not really adversaries because all they knew was to create wealth out of their mind, but they didn't know 
why they had to do it the way they were doing it and who was benefiting from it. And so that is possibly the best kind of slave you can have because that's a slave that is immensely, immensely uh, productive. Uh, I mean, no other animal, robot, anything on earth can produce as much as a human being with his intellect. And then he thinks one way or another that uh, you know, what's going on is fine and it's fair. And uh, yeah, he spent the first 18 years of his life not really learning what was going on. And so he's never going to question it. And he's going to spend the whole life until he goes to 60, whatever, 70, and you know, gave away all, most of his uh, intellectual value and creation to these cartels. And so the only way that you can defend your property is by understanding. That's why I appreciate people like you so much, mm. or Michael Sager, people who tell the world how things really work. Because that's, mm -hmm. to me, that's the only freedom you can get understanding hmm. no that's that's well said and i i appreciate you saying that um so i guess we could say at least that bitcoin is a step in the right direction towards getting oh yeah unbreakable or less breakable property which can help ameliorate the the predation of one class of people on another class of people and it's a bit ironic here too and i want to get into the your your experience in venezuela because socialism sort of ideologically identifies the problem perhaps in a way that there's a predator prey dynamic going on but then it you know marxism specifically prescribes the exactly wrong solution, which is to yeah. abolish private property exactly. rather than make private property stronger. Right. So maybe you could tell us just a little bit about uh, the history of Venezuela that you've you've seen up close and personal. I know you said that they were just an absolute undergoing an absolute economic boom, right? And in, in multiple commodities for many decades. Um, until basically socialism was implemented, I think you said in the early 1960s. Yes, 61. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, let me go back just one minute uh, because it, it's so funny that I analyze things the way, the way you do uh, because I go to the bottom behind what's happening right now. Isn't it funny that Angels was all the time financing Marx? Uh, and uh, his father's company was a beneficiary of people not knowing what the hell they were doing with their life and their money and their freedom. And isn't it not funny that Herbert Matthews spent almost 10 years, you know, making Cividad Castro a hero in the eyes of the United States and the eyes of the rest of the world? Isn't it funny that Trotsky got $20 million in financing and, uh, you know, you can look up the name. I don't want to name people, but it's in the books. It's public. It's in the libraries. It's everywhere. From a certain banker that was very well known back then. Uh, and then isn't it true? I mean, in this also, this is even more public, uh, that JP Morgan financed uh, the Bolsheviks. So why are these cartels? For the last 300 years, because this, this didn't start in, in the, uh, you know, the beginning of the 20th century. This started in 1692 with uh, the Central 
Bank of London. Bank of London was really created by uh, membership of half private and half public. Uh, they, they couldn't, you couldn't really call them public because they were not part of the public. Like they were congressmen. They were people with power in Congress. And they put it together in a way that uh, William could get financing because Charles before him uh, you know, died without paying almost a million pounds. And so uh, to make sure that that, you know, that, that, uh, uh, that William got his money for, for the war that, was, that he was uh, fostering at the time, it, they created a private or semi-private institution, uh, private in the eyes of everybody else, uh, because they didn't know the, the congressman intervention. And so this Bank of England uh, basically started buying treasury bonds, IOUs, back then it was called treasury, uh, from, from the government, from William's government, and uh, from King William. And, and then uh, the government paid 8%. That was a great coupon to get. And so somehow the rest of the banking system, the, the private banks that were the only type of banks that you had there, uh, saw the whole scheme as, uh, you know, yeah, that's not government. That's that's um, a IOUs that this really a powerful bank, which is managed by some really powerful people, are buying and they're making eight percent of it. And so when they came and uh, to to sell them those bonds or part of their bonds, they also told them that they could use them to discount them at the Bank of England window and get ninety cents on the dollar for each of them. So they were practically making money. Just, you know, everything that you hear around you here that, that you know, the, the banks are making are actually the ones that are printing the money. That's been going on for 300 years. It started 1692. So anyhow, this whole thing uh, began taking over and then Germany did it. And then Amsterdam, who was way ahead of them, uh, who didn't do the right thing basically because didn't do this. Ponzi scheme, uh, well, they, they also uh, took, they went ahead and, and copied. So everybody in Europe started copying the system. And the, the system is now all over the world. And that's a system that, that's in Venezuela. Venezuela and all these countries of ours are really uh, uh, the model of, the, of what the Bank of England created. And we all are, United States too. United States, uh, the, first, the first time they tried was 19, I'm sorry, 1781 even before the constitution. And uh, uh, Jefferson shut it down, basically. It was him and, and his group that said, uh -uh, don't, don't, don't renew it. And they went down in 83. Then, then the, the next central bank you guys came up with was uh, in 1787 or 89, right after the constitution, Hamilton was able to put together something with, uh, with, with uh, what's his name? The, the, famous banker of all times from England. So anyhow, he put the whole thing together. They, they got it together they, until 34 or 18, uh, 1834, 32, that, that Jackson basically did not renew it. And it was a major fight. That's, that's, that's when the second central bank went down. And then they were able to do it again at the beginning of the 20th century by financing uh, Wilson, uh, Will Wilson. So anyhow, what we have here, it's... Uh, systematic 
interest in the world becoming socialist. Why? Because, guess what? The only competition we have is these people here who are very productive. Why do we need all these other people out there competing against us? They, if anything, they're gonna get uh, very well armed. They're gonna, they, they can become a major enemy. Let them have socialism. Okay, great. Let them neutralize themselves. Let them kill themselves, right? <laughs> they don't even understand what they're doing. Okay, so let's finance that thing as much as we can. Let's have uh, Africa, Latin America, uh, whichever stupid European country uh, takes it. And we're getting rid of all kinds of people at the same time. So that's my, <laughs> my piece <laughs> right before I talk about Venezuela. <laughs> that's a great, so we could, we could say maybe to fit into the framework of this conversation that banks have been predatorial for 300 plus years. Yes. And Venezuela is just running the same playbook, right? Exactly. And all these things that I just said, they are proven. It's important for you always to understand that I'm not just mentioning things. All of this is proven and it's public. Yeah, okay, we should so probably we should condition it to you and say we're talking specifically about central banking here. This is not yeah. depository or investment okay. banking. Now they're all enmeshed and intertwined, but it's really the central bank and the legal monopoly, the coercive legal monopoly on money and money production that is the problem. Exactly. And so uh, by the time I was uh, in high school, uh, we had a history teacher who was practically indoctrinating the class uh, into socialism because Venezuela, and this was right before the uh, oil embargo, Venezuela uh, was be being destroyed by the capitalists. Uh, you know, ever since they got into Venezuela, they were expropriating our our, our sub. Um, you know, all 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 the 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 money in in our in the oil uh, wells and taking it away from us and all that. And the guy was just uh, like all audio. So, socialism was a big thing in Venezuela. As I said, probably because it was financed and spread by people who were interested in doing that. And so what I had to show the guy, and, and I did this myself, even though I had uh, a team of seven other people, they decided to go to the public library in my town because there was no book in, in, in my high school that had it, and showed him with numbers that we were the richest that we had been in 300 years. Meaning Venezuela was a cocoa exporter in the 1700s. And then it became uh, one of the uh, good uh, coffee exporters in the 1800s. But then it became an oil exporter uh, after 1917 when production uh, began. And, and, and by 1957, we were the fourth richest country per capita in the world. And not only that, we were second in the United States in GDP per capita. That's just an amazing feat for a little, uh, you know, territory the size of Texas uh, to accomplish in 40 years from 17 to 57. But then ever since the socialists came over and took over the country in 1958 and then put on a, a, a socialist constitution, um, completely central planned, 
uh, well, Venezuela started faltering in its oil production. And eventually, by the time of the oil embargo, yeah, Venezuela was doing badly because it had been in the hands of the socialists since 58. And uh, this guy was blaming the exact opposite, the people who had helped develop Venezuela's oil fields and had, had, had developed uh, our technology, our people. Uh, we have so many capable engineers because of them. And, and well, there you go. That's, that's, how, that's how people go after money. They took their socialism forward until they completely wiped out the oil industry. And especially over the last 20 years under you know, another 2000 stories. And whenever I hear people in, in, in the United States and in Europe talking you know, against um, you know, being conservative about expenses at the government level, uh, not giving away money to other countries in, in a way to, 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 to interfere with their internal domestic affairs. I mean, all the things that are logical to do, and, and I see all these voices coming out against them, you know, like, like the enemy is a person who's telling you to be frugal and, and to be conservative and to do the right thing, that's their enemy. So, and, and I, I get reminded that where we're going here is pretty much where we went in Venezuela. Well, yeah, it's so, it seems like a lot of wealth was created and that is effectively an incentive, right? For predation. That's what the predator wants. They want the wealth. The, you know, a, a prey has grown large and fat, if you will, and the, the predator uh, has a desire to consume the prey. And it seems like Venezuelans, perhaps, this, this really speaks to the ideological or the narrative plane where these battles take place, because Venezuelans were effectively indoctrinated by this anti-capitalist propaganda, right? That the capitalists were the problem. Yes. And had to be dealt with, which was the exact opposite of the truth. Capitalists are, that's the result. Creator. So, I'm sorry, that's the creator of the wealth in the first place. And this is where, where you know, education are, is so important because without understanding the nature of property, Venezuelans had no immunity to the rhetoric of socialists, right? You're, you're just, they're just, Again, you're back to this Marxist thing where you see you're sort of properly identifying a problem. There's a predator and prey dynamic, but then you're misprescribing the solution, which is to attack private property rather than to reinforce private property. Um, how right, because you know you're dealing with people who don't understand what it is you're doing behind your backs. Right. So it seems like if we could somehow just educate people about the nature of property that you might in future circumstances have more of a resistance to that rhetoric. Is that, yes. is that how you see it as well? Or, or what other, what other ways do you think we could prevent something like that from prevent what happened to Venezuela from happening again in other countries? Well, I think what we're doing here is exactly what should be done. People like you and me, going over the details of how these things happen and why, and if necessary, proving it. Because I'm always ready to link 
anything I say. That's why whenever I write something, you, you're going to see so many links and so many dates and names because I'd rather not read uh, somebody's opinion until they prove it to me, whatever it is they're saying. And so right. I apply the same technique to myself. And that's so important because if you don't do that, you could end up saying things that are not true or that are exaggerated. And teaching is such an important task. I mean, what you do every day in Twitter, uh, through this uh, video chat, uh, everywhere, what you're doing is the only thing we can do. That's the only thing that I, I, I've been doing for the last, I don't know, 40 years. Uh, but of course, uh, we're, we're never going to be, uh, uh, you know, somebody of interest for a media complex that is managed precisely by the governments of right. Venezuela, the US, Europe, the, who are the predators? I mean, why would they give you uh, or me or anybody who's really telling people what's going on any uh, any time uh, in the air? And, 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 that's, and if they do, they, 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 they do it to see if they can somehow uh, discredit you, just like right. they keep you against people. Yeah, that's so, a great point. Um, but it does seem like there's a little bit of ground giving way, you know, with the, with the advent of the internet, with perhaps the, again, the predator prey dynamic shifting, right, where the, the prey is really being pushed to the edge of its economic livelihood. So the, the, you know, people are waking up, like something's, not, something's wrong with the world, the government's been lying to me about everything. I'm, you know, prices are going up, my wages stay the same. So people are getting net poorer in real terms. So this, all these pressures, I think, tend to wake people up. What I would like to say at the end, always that the end of cycle ends like that, always. Yes, absolutely. And so I think what's maybe really important to highlight here is that those who seek to justify the violation of private property, the predators they're always going to engage in the creation of deceptive models, metrics, or even entire pseudosciences like Keynesian economics, right? Keynesian economics is pseudoscientific bullshit that's intended to justify the printing and legal monopolization of money. It's, that's just all it is. Um, you can, you know, debate me about that or, or what have you, but that's, I, I, I don't, Try to say yeah. things with a lot of certainty. I can prove that mathematically with yes. several of the equations. <laughs> by the way. Exactly. So we could say perhaps that the state really is, you know, despite what we've been led to believe over these past 300 years, especially that it's some type of you know, almost a replacement for religion, perhaps, you know, like this is ideological superstructure. It's really just the predator. It's just the systemized predation of private property, or in other words, it's a system for perpetrating widespread perpetual theft. In different clothing. <laughs> in, in different clothing, right, right. <laughs> and so, and as you said offline before, it only works if the taxpayer is subjugated, right? That There has to be real... There's not anything to steal unless people are creating something actually of value to steal. Yes. So this whole thing, this whole system is built on the back of the working class or taxpayers more generally. Um, 
you know, I hate to call it working class because we're all workers. Even if we don't have a blue collar job, you're we right. Spend all day working, and you know, we we are being taken advantage of. Also, so, so everybody, every one of us who's creating value is being taken advantage of, and that's all there is to it. Yeah, people that engage in consensual exchange, yeah. right? Because that's what it's all about. If it's consensual, then that means both parties find the trade to be valuable. But if it's not consensual in the form of, as as is true with taxation, theft, etc., then one party is getting ripped off, right? There's a reason it's non-consensual. So it's and, and those engaging in non-consensual exchange preying on those that engage in consensual exchange. And, and one thing to notice is that the reason that they are letting us be creative is very systematic also. Look at what happened to the socialists and the communists, okay? They completely stopped human credibility from happening. They, right. they, they took it down. Okay, they went poor, like they always do, like Venezuela did, because they are so ignorant. It's not just bad and, and, and rapacious and, and grotesque. But ignorant, they're so ignorant, they don't realize <laughs> the only thing of, of value is the creativity of those people. You, you can enslave their minds to think that they are supposed to pay taxes and they're supposed to whatever. I mean, they all the terrible things they teach us uh, that are only uh, in their benefit. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not... That's all you have to do. You, you cannot, uh, you know, put a chain on them like like Plato's uh, allegory of the cave. Right. Put their neck against the wall because then they're, they're all going to die of hungrier. And, and you too. And that's what happened in Venezuela. Venezuela and all those countries that did not understand that you got to let the slave, uh, you know, be productive, uh, be free, and think he's free. Uh, yes. they, they're never going to make any money. <laughs> yes, yes, that's a great point. And that lesson seems to have percolated out a bit because even in china now right they've they've yes. let some vestiges of free market capitalism sort of take hold in agriculture and other areas just so the the state has something to prey upon ultimately sure. um so that that's a great point to you now i'd like to tell you about a great new bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible, and then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. 
It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. I don't, I, it seems to me like there's just no hope without something like Bitcoin that so long as money was fully monopolized and people had no recourse to a form of property independent of the state that can be at least stored in a way that's extremely difficult to to steal that this system would just you know this this unstable feedback system i think as you call it would just repeat from now until forever um and coupled with this as you said offline you know bitcoin is the internet and this gets to a great point i think you made earlier too that the internet is designed for survivability Right. And that's the key differentiator here is that you have a, a unstable dynamic system that is all but certain to collapse repeatedly. Always. And you have this other system that's anti-fragile, right? That always seems to get stronger in conditions of adversity and get stronger with the printing of money and, and all of this. So is this, I mean, where, where, again, how, where do we go from here? <laughs> what do you think happens now? Where are we in the current, say, predator-prey dynamic? Where do you well, see the next collapse coming, and how do you see Bitcoin playing a role? Well, to begin with, uh, for me, Bitcoin is a miracle. And, and the reason I say that uh, forcefully is because I've been in banking for 40 years. I know banking from the inside out. I was a trader in New York during the Latin debt crisis. I was a regional treasurer for Latin America uh, out of Miami, managing all these countries or their treasuries for, for one of those banks. I was a head of one of those banks for Venezuela. I mean, I've done every executive job you can do for a bank and know how things go down and how they're done and who does it. And, you know, all the details. It, it, the difference between that and just anybody talking is that you have seen the money come and go in front of you, see all the trades, all the transactions, all the things they do, and all the uh, systems we have to protect the bank from getting robbed from traders, from back office people, from technology people, from clients. From, it's like, you know, the whole world is against you when you're inside the treasury of a bank. And that was my, 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 my almost my whole banking life I spent in the treasury and money finance, hmm. uh, not in credit, any of that, because the heart of the bank is a treasury. That's hmm. where the real money goes through. And that's where they can steal from you. That's where you have to, you know, watch and have systems in place. And for instance, one of the things that fascinates me about um, Sailor is how much he knows about treasury. I mean, I've never met any executive out there who knows much about treasury 
much less, you know, all the mechanisms that we use in treasury. I mean, for us, when, when, when you talk about counterparty risk, custody risk, systemic risk, um, country risk, I mean, every risk you talk about in the treasury is really one risk, liquidity risk. And mm. if you ask me, who've been in the trenches and in charge of a lot of possible problems to make sure they never happen, that's what I was watching. Every time I was watching the ledgers and the numbers I was asking from people to, to, to send me, I was really watching for liquidity thresholds, uh, whatever name you want to call it. So mm -hmm. when something like Bitcoin comes along, the reason I say it's a miracle is a follow-up. We were always trying to find not just straight throughput operational transactions, which is for us, that was like the, the holy grail in treasury, you know, transactions that takes place immediately because that's the way you're out of, uh, out of a situation of, of counterparty risk, credit risk, or cash risk. And you want to be out of that immediately. You want to have to settlement as soon as possible, and you don't deal with people who cannot set up quickly, and especially large amounts. So here we find not only is the thing settling, and, and when I say settling, I'm not talking about going back and forth for the next 12 weeks to check our layers between you, your bank, and my bank, or that day something happened and that didn't. No, no. We're talking about settlement for real in the next 30 minutes, forever. That's something I never heard of in my life, especially in Treasury. Second, you are dealing with final assets. I mean, you're dealing with final settlement. You, you don't have anybody on the other hand, on the other side, like treasuries. The reason why we were, we were like, you know, major percentage invested in treasury is because you always keep your, your US treasuries as a reserve for anything that goes wrong with liquidity in some other area of trading that's producing a lot of money, but it's risky. Okay, treasurers don't make you a lot of money, mm -hmm. but they take you out of any trouble that presents itself in anything else you're doing, Latin American debt, Russian debt, uh, whatever, um, leverage capital, anything. And so you gotta have that, you gotta have a lot of that, especially in times of crisis. Then uh, this thing comes along where you can have a lot of that without an IOU, without somebody on the other hand, without somebody who can stop payment mm -hmm. or get restructured. That's unheard of. Final settlement in 30 minutes in something that is as good as gold in the sense that you don't, you don't, uh, nobody owes you uh, on the other hand. And then no counterparty risk. And if you do have counterparty risk because you don't understand Bitcoin, you don't understand what you're doing. You don't understand why you bought that thing. Because anybody who keeps Bitcoin with a counterparty, you know, he's, he's just another speculator. He should be buying the cryptocurrency things that are that are worthless. Uh, because you know that's the kind of thing you should buy with 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 uh, ignorance. Mm. Uh, so if you have you you have no custody risk, no counterparty risk, no liquidity risk. Oh, that's another thing. You can send a billion dollars of this thing without asking anybody for permission. That's unheard of. So what, what I found with Bitcoin when I, when I came across 
and really could not believe it. I, I spent two years not believing it, all right? Because I have to study things to really, to really feel that I understand it better than the people who are telling me whatever they're telling me. And it took me two years to, yeah, give up. Oh, yeah, right, okay, the three words. <laughs> and uh, what, I, what I could not believe from the beginning and I ended up believing was that you could have the perfect treasury asset for a corporation or a bank or a country in that thing. And the minute people start understanding that, and you know, the public is not going to understand that, Robert. Okay, I, I, I tried. I, there's no way, they, they just don't have the, like I said at the beginning, it, human beings are not uh, uh, instantly uh, perceiving anything mathematical, okay? Right. Okay, so they, for them, this anything like that doesn't make any sense. And, the people who are going to, to, to get it are people like you and I, people who come from that environment, who dealt with that kind of uh, issues and how to solve it, and who are in the central bank somewhere else, in some other central bank, who are in the Ministry of Finance in some other country, and who might be starting to understand that this thing, uh, if the US doesn't want it, or, or the Europeans don't want it, they're going to take it over. And that's the game theory that in my way mm. of thinking is really going to take place. This whole adoption thing about the public, the public is never going to adopt it in mass with governments telling them that the thing is uh, bad and horrible and all the things they say every day of the week, which are all lies. Uh, but the professionals of treasury, in treasury, or in corporate finance, in uh, government finance, and in institutional finance, in insurance, they understand everything that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they will, they will be the ones. The second wave of Bitcoin adoption is going to come from powerful minds who've been through the trenches. Second, uh, like you said, the reason why the thing is indestructible, it's... Uh, it's because it's a past nuclear device. You know, people don't realize that the internet came out of the mind of a genius, Boran from, from uh, uh, what's the name? R&D, <laughs> Rand Corporation. Okay. Uh, at that time, it was not a corporation. It was, uh, it was a think tank. Anyhow, he was one of them. And, and they were giving a lot of, time to think and be creative. And he came up with the thought that, listen, in the first 26 hours, and this is a, you know, the incident between um, Kennedy and, and with, with the situation Cuba. in Cuba mm -hmm. and Nikita Khrushchev, uh, you know, nobody knew if there was gonna be a, a, a nuclear attack. And that was a preoccupation since the early fifties up until this guy offered in 1964 in a paper that I, that I linked. Actually, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna write this down tonight or tomorrow. I'm gonna send it it's out. It's on distributed communication networks, and we'll link it to the show notes. Excellent. Okay. So anyhow, he basically tells AT and T and the Air Force, which is the people they work for. Listen, you cannot have a central uh, um, dot, a central node uh, that 
all communications depends on because all they need to do is take out that note. And for the next 26 hours of attacks, uh, neither this president nor their president is going to be able to react. There's going to be a, a nuclear war no matter what because the, the, the generals are going to keep on shooting because they, they get no feedback. So we need to stop that from happening by giving them feedback. And uh, he proposed the, the system of um, distributed nodes that are not connected to the local central node. It basically completely responsible, powerful nodes, each of them can reconnect behind any node that gets destroyed, exactly like the brain works. And that was his, mm -hmm. you know, his argument was very, very persuasive. The brain will basically go around anything that's happening in your, in your head, if you had a, an accident or something, and will reconstruct your sight or your audio, uh, your hearing, uh, you know, by going around. And that's what he proposed. That's what we should do. And, and they were able to do it finally by, by 1969. They, they put it together and, and eventually uh, the digital age emerged from his idea. And Bitcoin is exactly the same thing. It's a nodal system where no one has control and where everybody has input, which gives the whole world a network, a domestic network in each place in the world that it's impossible to kill. Because every time you kill one, let's say you kill all the nodes in China, okay, you shut it down. Okay, guess what? You're making rich everybody else around China <laughs> who's now gonna be incentivized. Like happened. This actually happened in 1991. May. You're just making people rich all over the, the world. You're stupid. You obviously don't understand this thing is unkillable. It's the internet. It's the same thing. You have to live with it. Period. So uh, from there to the next step, uh, we have the arguments already set up. First of all, why the next step is not going to be the public adoption, but the sophisticated adoption by very powerful players. And third, how that happens. And for me, that happens at the um, currency, fiat currency poker table. So you tell me which, I mean, what do you want to do? <laughs> no, no, that's, that's <laughs> great. Great run there. So just, again, to echo a couple of things you said there, we have this asset that is pure equity, right? Or a bearer asset, but simultaneously globally transactable, right? So it's, it's all money and no promise. And as you said, you know, your experience in banking, like you're, you're shuffling promises around, right? You're ultimately trying to get the gold or, or the least um, counterparty risk laden asset in your treasury, but you're trying to create alpha too by you know playing in all these high counterparty risk or high liquidity risk assets. And I guess to put maybe some icing on that cake, the other thing is that you know, you're only going to get this once, right? You can only have money with a fixed supply one time with a credibly fixed supply. Now we can go and launch 
you know, Robert and Oswaldo coin right now and say it has a fixed supply, but that's counterparty risk, right? You have to believe us that we're not going to print more of the thing. So this whole, this only happens once game. Theoretically, you get one time, one money with a, an absolutely fixed supply and it's never going to happen again. But as you, to your point, the profundity of that idea takes some time to permeate people's consciousness. And I think you're right when you say that the people that are intimately familiar with the inner workings of these financial systems are going to get it first. Um, and you sort of already see that, right? Like you alluded to Sailor earlier, he's an engineer, but he's also been a you know public executive for, I don't know, 30 years or whatever it is. So it's those types of people that are going to get it first. Um, and you alluded to this, and I, I, this is where I think it gets really interesting. You know, I'll just ask an open-ended question, I guess. What are the, obviously there's a lot of implications at the individual or institutional level. What are the geopolitical implications of this going forward? You know, you mentioned to me offline that you see something like maybe the identification that this is a threat to certain Western institutions, perhaps by non-Western institutions, and then this predator-prey dynamic sort of gets seized upon, right? It's an opportunity to thwart your your rival, something like that. So um, not to lead the question, I'll leave it open-ended. How do you see the geopolitical implications uh, going forward of Bitcoin? Well, if we've been watching and reading 300 years, of evolution of the financial system, you realize that the monetary system is really the blood that makes humanity uh, circulate. It, it, it really makes it alive. It, it, it contributes to us getting better or, or more uh, adapted to, uh, to the surroundings and like we have done over the last uh, you know, 12,000 years. But the monetary system always is being taken over by somebody. Somebody has always led the monetary system back uh, during the times of Rome or before them uh, until now. So the reason why they, they take over is because they end up being the beneficiaries of a lot of the creativity and productivity of the people surrounding them that use that monetary system. And so anything that replaces their monetary system is an enemy. It's something that they don't want to happen. And especially when that enemy is uh, impossible to distract, to defeat. Because you're not talking about Venezuela trying to prohibit the dollar, which is what they did. Eventually, you know, all these countries, Zimbabwe, Argentina, Venezuela, their only uh, weapon is to destroy their own people. Okay, all right, you don't buy any more dollars. Uh, you can only have Bolivars and we take it all. We, we're going to print Bolivars forever in one day, all of them. And that's what they did. And that's what Zimbabwe did. That's what Argentina is doing. That's what all of them do. And that's what this country right now is doing, by the way over the last two years. So the only thing they can do is prohibit their own society 
from melting their private property. I'm not gonna let you, you know, not give it to me. Uh, they're forcing that society to basically give them all their money uh, because they know they're going to devalue it and uh, they have no, no other way. They, they always, they have, they have to restructure, they have to go through uh, uh, an ego situation where they're gonna have to tell the world that they were bankrupt the whole time and they were just passing on the buck. And uh, since 2008, the, the country has been increasing the size of the hole in the banking network. Hmm. And uh, yeah, you know, having to recognize all of that, not gonna happen. So all they're gonna do is devalue, just like all these uh, banana republics devalue. And before that though, you know that if you can convince enough people in your own country that the dollar is bad, you know, anybody who buys dollars is, is bad, you know, in Venezuela, that was a thing, right? Anybody who, who, who was uh, unpatriotic uh, was buying dollars, you know, they, they were creating cows for Venezuela. That's what you're gonna see here. <laughs> it's gonna be a security issue to, to buy Bitcoin eventually, and they're going to prohibit it uh, to their own society. And so what happens is that the richest, the people in power in Venezuela, Argentina, Zimbabwe, and obviously here, anyone else, who have immense access to liquidity, they already have their channels outside of the country already all set up in all kinds of different places to basically, you know, uh, not let anyone devalue their productive um, amount of, of effort they, they created over so many years. And so that's the largest chunk of money that's gonna leave the country in minutes. And when I say minutes, I'm, I'm really talking about weeks because that's what happened in Venezuela. And that's what happens in every one of these countries. The largest chunk of money is the one concentrated in the hands of those very few individuals who are also in government or very close to government and who mm. knows the exact date of when this is gonna be done, when they're going to uh, publish a prohibition, they, they know all the insides of what's coming because they're part of it. And so the only ones that are going to get saved is going to be them. And it so happens that they have, who knows, 80% uh, of, the, of the, the money in the country. And uh, so the only people who end up uh, holding the bag are the people who kept their currency, the local currency, uh, because now they, they, they can't trade out of it, just like Lebanese and all these other people. And uh, eventually they're, they're, they're condemned to, to lose everything they worked for. And uh, in the case of countries, you have adversaries who are doing exactly the same as you. So if you're the United States uh, and you have Russia, China, um, India, uh, Arab countries, all these other players at the currency poker table have the same agenda that you have. The only people they can confiscate property from is their people. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're doing. But to do that, they have to maintain uh, a consensus so that you don't go crazy, uh, you know, basically taking away support or uh, attacking their, 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 their currency or their reserves, like 
what just happened with Russia, uh, or somehow or another uh, taking away from them any power they had previously at the table before you came up with this new situation. And so the way they rearrange the currency poker table is by what can you do momentarily? Okay, momentarily, I can sell natural gas because I'm the biggest purveyor of natural gas in Europe. And these people without natural gas, they're gonna be extremely cold this winter. And they're gonna pay me whatever they have to pay me. They have to pay rubles, they will pay rubles. And so guess what? Rubble goes up mm -hmm. uh, in price against the dollar, against gold, against anything. Because in reality, what's behind you, your country is your productive capacity. If that productive capacity happens to be a commodity, well, guess what? That's your productive capacity. If that is uh, millions and millions and millions of uh, laborers like China, well, this, that's what you got. So what you're really taking at that table is the amount of production that you can use to force everybody else to stay, to make the same decisions they've made for the last, I don't know, uh, since 1944. And that gain cannot change unless there is a reset of the Nash equilibrium that's been established since 1944. Mm -hmm. And that's what's interesting to talk about because the Nash equilibrium is, it happens to- Can we just to, define that too, please? Sure. Well, it's a solution that applies when you have two or more adversaries. Uh, playing a game where they cannot increase their payout uh, just by changing their game. Uh, if everybody else doesn't change their game. So if everybody else keeps playing the same game with the same strategy that they've played since 1944, I can change my game for a little while, but not for long. Because if I do, I'm going to lose. I'm going to end up losing more than the payoff that I got from changing it. So it, it, it requires that the whole group of players uh, changes their game. Uh, and they're not going to do that, especially the dominant players, because the game is making them winners for all these years, you know, over 70 years. So what's going to happen is that um, if somebody comes to the table and realizes that there is a currency out there that doesn't require geopolitical alliances or strategic alliances from the country that makes it because there is no country behind Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin by itself is a geopolitical power. Mm -hmm. So you're dealing with sort of like you're dealing with a commodity that your country doesn't produce and no other country can claim that they produce it or they own it. You're dealing with that commodity that is, you know, it's a free for all right now. And if you realize that that commodity is the only commodity that cannot be stopped from flowing mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. you, and it can't, because the, the, the whole thing about Bitcoin, is what I was saying before, it's unstoppable. Uh, it's, uh, it's uncensorable and it's 100% transferable, meaning the transfer utility 
of Bitcoin does not exist in any other currency in the world. It's 100% transferability, uh, meaning there are no inflationary payments that are coming to you. There are no intermediary uh, you know, doors that you're gonna have to cross back and forth to get your money again. There are no custody risks. There are, there are so many uh, uh, things that are not uh, in there that if you are Russia or um, China or any one of these countries, you're eventually gonna see that this is the only country, the only uh, country currency, which is the world currency that cannot be intervened by a country that nobody can decide all of a sudden to freeze your Bitcoin reserves. <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> so right there, the minute they start you know, realizing that, the game theory of Bitcoin comes together because those are the, the most powerful players in the monetary system now and always. And those are the people who are going to realize that there is a major difference between holding uh, uh, a currency that they can make everybody else pay for and holding a currency that can be frozen from them at any time uh, or in any place. So uh, countries that are sporting energy, for instance, are going to eventually realize that energy is really the biggest, the most important commodity in the world, much more than gold and more, much more than anything ever uh, since it came along in, in 1859. So oil is what made the dollar what it is. You know, the, the reason why the dollar could abandon the gold standard so easily in 1936 and, and even prohibit uh, people from holding it in 33, and then eventually getting rid of the, uh, the peg in, in 71, is because really what has kept the dollar uh, powerful uh, during the last 100 years or so, not just from 1944 on, is two things. One, the incredible um, power that came from oil, from energy. Energy is the commodity. And the second thing is being very smart about using dollar for financing uh, countries all over the world and practically putting them on their payroll in that sense. So, so it's sort of like you, you have all the people on the table, really all of you for real. They owe you uh, <laughs> because you've been financing them through different sources, IMF, World Bank, uh, whatever, uh, IDB. <laughs> you know, you created, who knows, 100 uh, multilaterals out there mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to have them on a leash, basically. So uh, at the table, at the, at the currency poker table, uh, not easy, it's not easy to betray you. Uh, one, because of your power, and second, because you created uh, a debt uh, monopoly uh, with your currency, uh, which is a very smart move. So what's gonna happen here is that whoever comes to that table now and changes the game on his own, regardless of what anybody else does on the table, it's got to be, first of all, a huge energy player. I mean, nobody else can survive uh, doing that because you can be sure the dominant players at that table are going to take away energy from you on day one. 
energy is going to be uh, impossible to end up in your country uh, until you desist. And second, um, the minute that country does that, because it's an energy producer and, and it's obviously a, a pilot energy producer, anybody else who's been buying energy from him is going to have to go out there and buy Bitcoin because the guy doesn't accept anything about Bitcoin. So for him, it's going to be incredibly cheap to accumulate all the Bitcoin you're giving away, uh, talking badly about it and making stories about it every day in your media <laughs> to this guy who's now going to be resetting the Nash equilibrium because everyone who deals with them is going to have to take Bitcoin into reserves to be able to get their oil shipments every day of the week. Uh, they're going to have to build up a reserve in Bitcoin. Uh, suddenly, all the, all the second or third, whoever, the other oil player is going to notice, say, well, guess what? Uh, that's the currency my enemy hates. Huh. That's country, that currency is my friend. I mean, so, so it's sort of like all your adversaries, uh, political adversaries uh, in the table are going to be immediately interested. That's when they're going to notice that Bitcoin was a huge geopolitical weapon uh, that they could have taken advantage of uh, for what, 10 years now? Uh, because, yeah, not saying 13 and a half because they would have not been aware, but okay, maybe five years. But they're, they're, they're gonna get it. Um, I think they got, I, I know some of the people in those countries and, and I know they got some really smart people and uh, they are the ones that are gonna make those decisions. That is, um super interesting and compelling angle on the whole game theory uh you know i've i've man i've written and talked about this a lot but never to the to the intricate detail you just went into there so let's see i guess in general for countries their export commodities are their leverage right it's like that's what the world needs from them basically. So if there's contention of any kind, you take away what the world needs from you. That's your leverage at the fiat currency poker table or the geopolitical stage, as you said. And again, just to define Nash equilibrium, like it's the default strategy adopted among inherently antagonistic players. So when you're sitting at the poker table, you can't trust all the other players, right? They're all out to get you. You're out to get them. There's kind of a default strategy that's adopted in, in those conditions. And the, you know, so obviously this applies to geopolitics where everyone's antagonistic, everyone's looking out for their own interest. And but notice, Robert, one thing, one thing to mention is you cannot change it. If you change it on your own, like we're saying it's going to happen here. Right. You better have energy and Bitcoin. <laughs> yes. Right, right, right. So we get to this, and again, just to reinforce the importance of game theory. I hate the term game theory, actually, because it sounds like it's something that's theory. Like, no, it, it is how animals behave. It is how humans behave. You know, I, I often say it, often put it like this, that individual patterns of action are emergent properties 
of the incentive structures they inhabit, right? We are our incentives. Like what did Charlie Munger say? Show me the incentive. I'll show you the outcome. It's, you know what I call it? Behavior dynamics. Behavior dynamics. It's not theoretical. It's damn near certain, right? If I... Mathematical. Yeah, it's, it's mathematical. And it, it's not objective necessarily, but you know, I think if you just have lived in the world for two minutes, you'll know that like Wu-Tang Clan said, cash rules everything around me, right? Like incentives talk and they move people, obviously. So the benefits of this shift in Nash equilibrium seem like they will accrue to the country that A, has enough foresight to understand game theory and understand the, the shift, the potential shift in Nash equilibrium. It's almost like you're, you're just engaging foresight of what is to come. And, and if it's, it simultaneously needs to be a country that has large, that can leverage large energy exports, right? Because they can pull the energy and use that as a point of leverage. Having, I think, as you said, this was accumulate Bitcoin in advance of pulling the energy so that now you've accumulated Bitcoin on the cheap, but you're forcing all these other countries that need energy to now go out and acquire Bitcoin to buy your energy so you've you've basically flipped the game board over on them and well i, I see it as though you're gonna get all that bitcoin they need their energy so even if you don't accumulate it uh at the beginning you're gonna get it um you know people need energy to live and second uh no matter what uh, you do with without Bitcoin, you're going to be in a situation like the people who bought Bitcoin back in 2011 or 2012. You're going to be the biggest accumulator of Bitcoin receipts from all places in the world and the biggest transactor in Bitcoin from there on against anybody else. I mean, it, you know, whoever thinks he's, he's, uh, he's a Bitcoin billionaire it's gonna be small potatoes compared to you. You're gonna be the biggest guy in the market. Yeah, that's a great point. And then the other, uh, I mean, the, I guess the last wrinkle I would add to this is that shift in demand, the, the preponderance of demand shifts away from, let's say the petrodollar as the means for, for settling global energy to Bitcoin you've put tremendous downward pressure on the purchasing power of that currency. Yes, sir. And you've put tremendous upward pressure on the purchasing power of Bitcoin. And so this could really trigger a hyper Bitcoinization like event, right? Where we talk about this, we've called it a lot of different things, hyper Bitcoinization, which is like the opposite of hyperinflation in a way, you know, like instead of money collapsing in purchasing power, Bitcoin would be ascending in purchasing power. At some exponential rate, um, could be kind of this reverse bank run on Bitcoin. I think is a term that Safety has used, where every bank in the world just suddenly realizes, "Holy shit, that's going to happen." Th this game just flipped, and like we all need to scramble to get as much of this as we can. All the while, the supply of Bitcoin is unchanged, right? Like with any other commodity in the world, there would be this huge incentive as a result of this shift to produce more of the thing, whether it's gold or oil or whatever. But again, unique to Bitcoin, it's the only asset 
in the world that there will ever be with an absolutely fixed supply. So you're going to have all of this exponentially surging demand hitting an immovable supply curve. And I think it's just going to be a frenzy, honestly. And well, that's what happens when, when you shift the Nash equilibrium. That's very hard to reset. Mm -hmm. But this thing is a miracle. This thing has all the ingredients that you need to reset something like the currency Nash equilibrium. That, you know, I never thought that, that could happen in my lifetime. Um, and then the, the other thing to, to keep in mind is that the second step function that happens mathematically with Bitcoin is this, not public adoption. I mean, that, I, I, you know, I've, I've said that already three mm -hmm. or four times because I've been saying it for a while. And uh, as long as we keep talking to the public, I don't think we, <laughs> we're going to help that happen. Okay, so I think we need to start talking to, uh, to people who understand uh, mathematics. Well, who, know, who knows who's listening to this, but it sure is fun to talk about these ideas. And, um, you know, maybe this is a bit abstract. We're talking about Nash equilibrium and game theory and whatnot, but just to kind of try to bring it down to earth. You, we've seen shifts in the Nash equilibrium a lot in military, let's say, right? Like once your enemy invents air power, fighter jet or whatever it is, you are absolutely ruined against your enemy if you don't step up to that technological plate, right? You better have air power if your enemy has air power. You better have a machine gun if your enemy has machine guns. You better have a cannon if your enemy has cannons, what it's, it's that type of advance. So, um, yeah. Wow. What a great run. Oswaldo, this has been one hell of a conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, this game theory, again, the game theoretic aspects of Bitcoin, I think are just where the light bulb moment occurred for me originally. And I, you know, can't under I think it's difficult to understate the importance of looking at the world in this way. So the predator prey dynamics the lens on the world makes so much sense. And I hope hope that this conversation leads people to be more curious about you know the nature of property and this the way socioeconomic socioeconomics are structured. Um, so yeah again just thank you a lot. I really appreciate that. Would you please let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work? Sure. Um, I've been publishing all of these thoughts for the past 20 years in a website that has the name of my previous uh, business broker in Venezuela. I used to run, after I left banking, I set up my own um, a stock broker in Venezuela. And we mainly dealt with uh, you know, basically financial transaction back and forth. And uh, the name is Sequoia, like the Sequoia tree, but it's got an N at the end, sequoia.com. Uh, that's where I publish all my writings. And uh, I'm going to be publishing, republishing three Bitcoin uh, writings that for some reason uh, somehow uh, were unpublished uh, a few weeks ago. But um, I'm going to be republishing them because they tell you exactly what happened. How did I get into Bitcoin and why? And you will see there why uh, I went from uh, 
trying to find a solution for systemic, systemic banking risks. But because back in the 80s, when, when I was in Citibank and then in these other places, um, I started to eventually uh, leave for, for a couple of years, actually for a year, and uh, do a master uh, in, in basically in finance and uh, all the concepts that I felt in computing that I needed because, you know, I wasn't paying a lot of attention to, to the computing world back then. But after that, and I went to Carnegie Mellon, which I think is the best university for anything related to, to computer science. Um, I met with the creator of triple book entry accounting. I mean, this is the genius that comes after 500 years to create the accounting that is behind Bitcoin's mm. setup. That accounting has been around since he created it and published this book in 1989. He was one of my teachers. By the way, he was our accounting teacher. There you go. <laughs> 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 right. And this guy, uh, eventually his, his triple entry booking uh, accounting, was picked up by uh, another computer guy who's really, really smart, uh, Ian, Ian uh, Scrip or Scrip, I can't remember the name, in 2005. And uh, eventually he was uh, picked up by Satoshi, obviously. But it was amazing how uh, for, since the time I left Carnegie Mellon until he died in 2007, I was really mad that the whole world hadn't recognized this thing was going to wipe out uh, banking systemic risk. And the reason why it wipes it out, let me tell you, it's very important to understand what Bitcoin is resolving here. The mathematical um, accounting, uh, not just all the other things that we just talked about, but the mathematical accounting is that when you have double entry accounting, you need a third party to audit your books right. because there's always a counterpart to those two sets of numbers. And the counterpart is the liability guy on the other side or the creditor on the other side. So everybody's books need to be audited, all of them. And one of the things that, you know, I, I come from the banking world and we tend not to believe in anyone, period, okay? And this is for real. Um, we have to verify everything. And the uh, solution this guy gave me was, hey, we don't need auditors anymore. I don't believe auditors. That's my, my, that's, that's, that was really my issue. Uh, I, I could not believe certain books and certain uh, bonds that were being issued. And I didn't believe the auditors. And therefore, I got into situations where not, I don't believe those auditors. Period. I'm not gonna buy it. Whatever. This guy solved my problem because uh, now we were gonna have triple entry accounting, and because of triple entry accounting, you don't need banks anymore to depend on each other for um, uh, a domino crash among them. You don't need to have ever again systemic risk 
because mm. it's not depending on your books that I'm placing my money with you. You understand? I'm right. lending you money or I'm buying your bonds. You, if you're a corporate or a bank or a government, whoever you are, now I'm looking at transparency and to make my decision on whether or not to hold your treasury bonds or to hold your corporate bonds, or I'm not going to make it based on S&P or some auditor I don't believe in. Mm. Uh, I'm going to base it on mathematical entries that take away all the systemic risk from you, from me, and from all of our countries. But guess what? That's obviously not something they were interested in. <laughs> because <laughs> Yehudi died in 2007, uh, being an total unknown. Wow, that I did not know that. Um, and then I picked up Bitcoin because of because I saw somebody talking about triple entry accounting in Bitcoin. No way, no way. How could an unknown guy, you know, who disappears? And I wrote this is the article that I wrote that that I'm going to rewrite because in, in that article I say that I could not believe uh, some hacker who was able to master TBE, the Triple Entry Accounting, <laughs> would abandon his creation. That, that just didn't make any sense. That, that sounded like a hack to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's it though. Yeah, it's the, well, I mean, I guess the integration of proof of work to everything else that is Bitcoin that really did solve Triple Entry Bookkeeping. And um, wow, yeah, thank Thank God for that, for all the reasons we've laid out today. Um, Oswaldo, thank you again. Uh, we'll have to do another conversation because this, this information is too important to keep in our heads. So I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much. And um, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, send, I'll send you that article specifically because you're going to feel the emotion. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I, I, look, I look forward to that. <laughs>